G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Something very significant that may be emerging is what some are saying may be the beginning of a welcome trend, and that is an increasing number of public figures, uh, not necessarily Christian figures, but public figures who are now beginning to criticise the way that debate is being silenced on important cultural and moral issues. Author J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, no matter what you might think about the series, uh, well, she felt the barrage of criticisms for a recent stand that she made on transgender issues. And a little bit common sense, but hey, you know, what is common sense? Well, she said, I cannot and will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions. And more recently, Aussie musician Nick Cave of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds has been courageous enough to write in a blog against what we've come to know as woke cancel culture. Now, Cave lamented that political correctness has grown to become the unhappiest religion in the world. Well, a conversation today about our present-day cultural and sexual revolutions with the idea that the revolutionaries inevitably push too hard, too far and overreach, that even their own supporters think what they're saying is even reasonable. Well, our special guest through this coming hour, Damien Wild, leads the Australian Family Coalition, defending the family, promoting a society grounded on conservative Christian values and aspiring to safeguard the basic freedoms that are under threat today. You'll remember Damien Wild as being at the forefront of the marriage debate just a few years back and has been an outstanding advocate for the family and for Christian values. And Damien's back with us. Damien, welcome to 2020. Neil, it's great to talk again. Uh, Damien, we're going to talk revolutions today, and even in my introduction, I've called the current revolutions that are going on, and I think quite obviously the current sexual revolution, and more deeply than that, a current cultural revolution that's happening right now. Uh, But there's revolutions that have happened throughout history, and lots of these revolutions have some things in common. What are your thoughts in general about revolutions invariably going too far? Well, I'm a bit of a history tragic, I admit, Neil. Um, I probably spent a bit too much uh, time on the topic, and it was uh, part of my my tertiary studies many years ago. So I guess that uh, a bit like that famous quote of those who don't know history being bound to repeat it, I tend to see these sorts of trends and comment on how the fact that what we're living through, uh, and and in a very biblical way, there being nothing new under the sun, we've often seen these sorts of themes before. Um, And it's really occurred to me in recent times that just like any any revolution of the past, the revolution uh, that we are, in a sense, living through now is already coming to that that crossroads moment where I think a lot of people realise the project's headed for a cliff and whatever good intentions people may have had, uh, however misplaced, uh, revolutions do invariably go too far. 
And I think that's why we're starting to see these people turning away from the cliff and saying, look, you know, maybe the fence is there for a reason. Um, and we're starting to get these sort of divergent voices you talked about before, that the J.K. Rowling, the, uh, the Nick Caves of the world, and numerous other figures that I could quote as well. But it really is a fascinating thing to be living through. Race, religion, sexuality, are these all separate revolutions that seem to be happening right now? Or do you think they're all combined under one particular heading, Damien? <laughs> well, the other part of my tertiary studies, Neil, was political science. So um, <laughs> yep. I, I, when I marry the two up, it's quite a dangerous combination. Look, I think the term cultural Marxism has been bandied about I think correctly, but perhaps uh, without a a due consideration on the part of some people use it as to how all of these different trends actually, uh, how they tie together, because it's no surprise we are seeing them all at the same time. People might wonder what some of them have to do with each other, but it's really about that great levelling of society, about pitting minorities against majorities, and often in the most manufactured of ways. I mean, I've used that phrase manufactured with regards to many elements of um, some of the, the rainbow agenda but you can apply it to so many of the sorts of themes we're seeing uh, out there at the moment, whether it be accusations of racism, the tearing down of statues and revision of our history and culture. Um, there is a, a far deeper uh, root cause behind many of these. And to use the phrase cultural Marxism would not be incorrect at all. So this idea of overreach or, you know, if you talked about in a, a political science context, the idea of uh, socialism uh, and the you know the rising up of the uh, of, of the you know the, uh, the the lower people the workers uh, against the bosses the rich uh, there's a certain sense in which overreach really happens two ways doesn't it because you might not get the proletariat rising up against the bourgeoisie if the bourgeoisie didn't overreach in the first place so there's there's all sorts of balances that happen uh, if you're talking about these types of possibilities for revolution. Oh, absolutely. And it doesn't matter whether you're looking at the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or that of today. Invariably, the average punter uh, may genuinely have a grievance. Uh, they may feel a sense of injustice uh, you know, being applied. But ultimately, all these revolutions are always very bourgeois. They, all, they are always directed and governed by a middle class or what we might term today an elite. Uh, and we see that with so many of these woke figures. Uh, trying to lead the campaign, uh, the chattering classes on Twitter, telling us basically what we should think, how we should think. We saw that in no uncertain terms during the 2017 marriage campaign. And we're continuing to see it on a, a raft of issues at the moment. Okay, let's come back to the likes of J.K. Rowling or Nick Cave. The idea that there are public figures who don't identify with the Christian movement, uh, the Christian public, the Christian constituency, they're not uh, identifying as Christian. In fact, they're even standing for some things that Christians uh, think are, are pretty awful anyway. But but these public oh, figures, I, they're, they're picking up the baton here and, and they're saying there's been overreach, this has gone too far because they're now at threat of being cancelled themselves. Absolutely. Um, you know, J.K. Rowling was, uh, you know, certainly uh, not on the same page as many conservatives, many Christians. Um, you know, some of her characters from Harry Potter have apparently been outed as gay over the years. Um, there have been, you know, numerous forays by her into uh, these sorts of debates, and she's certainly been quite supportive of the LGBT push. But I think that, um, you know, when push comes to shove, she realises that, 
uh, there are deeper issues here at stake. Um, it's all fine when we can agree to disagree, but when people are being deplatformed, when people are being cancelled, quote unquote, we see a pretty alarming trend. I think that J.K. Rowling and people like her are, uh, are big enough uh, and safe enough, perhaps in their careers, that they can risk doing these things. So I do believe they're doing it for the most genuine of reasons. But I imagine that there are many people out there, whether they be actors, comedians, writers, particularly people with that artistic element. Um, as you said, Neil, their very livelihoods are at stake, uh, just as many Christians find themselves at risk in the workplace, uh, in the pulpit, for simply expressing their, their sincerely held beliefs. Um, it's a very dangerous trend we are seeing, and that's why, uh, whether we agree with the likes of, of J.K. Rowling or not, it's fantastic to see them speaking out. As you mentioned before, um, other people who may not necessarily come from a Christian background, and I don't profess to being a, a, a great, um, to having a deep knowledge of Australian pop music, so I, I had to look up a bit of uh, Nick Cave's work and find out a bit about him when he when he spoke out during the week. From what I can tell, he's agnostic, and um, you know holds, I dare say, many opinions that I would not share. But to see him speaking so rationally and insightfully on this issue has been a really welcome thing, and this is the sort of thing we need to encourage. Interestingly, just come back to J.K. Rowling for just a few moments here and mm. uh, what appears to be the thing that uh, got up under everyone's skin to, to cause her to come under attack. Uh, she uh, had an issue with... Uh, this uh, idea of gender pronouns. Uh, I mean, as Christians, we know being created in the image and likeness of God, God creates male and female. Uh, for us, it's no big deal. We say his, hers, him, she. Uh, but gender pronouns, uh, there's this woke move to remove gender pronouns and make everybody just uh, in some ways uh, neutral. And what J.K. Rowling said, uh, she has attacked moves to diminish biological women. So she's really speaking out here on behalf of women. And, uh, and for that, we would say, isn't that wonderful that she's been able to do that? Because she condemned the ridiculous term for calling women people who menstruate. Now, <laughs> now that's, that is crazy. And, and yet this is where she's been attacked uh, any thoughts on just the, the, the craziness of the sorts of things that people will say as common sense, uh, but this is what they're being pulled down for? Oh, well, as I've said before, Neil, unfortunately, common sense is no longer so common. Um, and uh, Rowling is quite, I think, the accidental campaigner on these issues, because if memory serves, uh, she was dragged into it uh, rather indirectly by her support for someone else who'd actually fallen foul of, of these laws. So simply by virtue of sticking up for someone else, she suddenly found herself embroiled in these issues and has gone down the rabbit hole um, and investigated further and has reacted to some of the, the pushback on these sorts of issues. One thing I think is really important from her uh, public commentary, though, one, one really important thing to take away, and that is that she has not backed down we see so many people who, when they take the first bit of flack, when they uh, have the first sign of pushback or revulsion or the first attempt to cancel them, to use that, that word again, they'll back down. They'll apologise. They'll hide their, their lamp under a bushel. I know, as I said before, that she is uh, you know, perhaps big enough, established enough in her career 
uh, could probably happily walk away and retire into the sunset if she chose to. But I still think that the that message holds true for all of us, that we shouldn't be afraid to point to plain common sense. I mean, it's actually ridiculous that we have to point to biological facts. Um, but that's where we are as a society. And the sooner people start just getting back to those common sense truths again, the better off we're going to be. There might be a deep question for all of us in this, Damien. Uh, at what point are you cancelled by cancel culture? And uh, and I, what I hear, as you're just uh, reflecting there, uh, if you back down, well, then you might assume that you've been cancelled. If you, like J.K. Rowling, don't back down, refuse to back down, just stand for what you believe, well, then you haven't been cancelled. Uh, there's a bit of a psychological drama unfolding here, isn't there? Uh, because uh, oh, this yeah. is the manipulative uh, part of, of what cancel culture tries to do, because uh, if you succumb, then you've lost. But if you stand for what you believe, well, <laughs> you haven't lost anything. You, you're still standing your ground. Absolutely. It doesn't take the likes of a, a Jordan Peterson or someone else who might have a, a university cancel their venue on them or uh, perhaps someone to run foul of visa problems when they want to share some Christian or conservative message uh, that might be unpopular. We can self-cancel when we cower in, in fear, when we think twice about hitting enter on the uh, the button when we're, we're sharing our thoughts online. Um, self-cancellation is a, a very real thing and we certainly shouldn't be afraid. Um, I don't think anybody that I come across, um, any Christian or conservative, uh, is particularly aggressive or should shy away from sharing their thoughts. We're not all sort of called to be rabid activists for our beliefs, but we are called to, to share the truth. And I think the moment uh, that we stop, we stop doing that, we, I forget who said it, there was a famous quote about sort of dying inside, and I don't think that's too dramatic a thing to say because as a culture, we're certainly headed that way. Um, we really need people to sort of rediscover their courage just to say simple things like men are men and women are women. Um, we have the right to uh, teach our, our children these truths and others. So as, as individuals as well as society, it's incumbent on us to start you know, rediscovering our courage and to be a voice for the truth. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our talk back line open, 1-800-316-316. You might have a thought or two on our conversation today, talking about revolutions, overreaching. Uh, the idea too, uh, do you think cancel culture is a passing fad? You might have your own thoughts on the celebrities we're talking about. Uh, they've put their neck on the block. <laughs> they've decided to stand uh, for what they believe is true. And they're not even Christian, the celebrities we've been talking about so far. Well, our special guest this hour is Damien Wilde. He leads the Australian Family Coalition. And uh, Damien, interestingly, uh, celebrities who speak out, uh, those who are at the end of their career, you might say, and some might say they're at the prime of their career, but uh, some of these, like J.K. Rowling, as you say, well, she may have not much to lose because she's already been a huge success. 
Then there are others who have spoken out, like Rowan Atkinson or John Cleese. Uh, They've also come under fire. You might say they have reached past the prime of their careers, so they can afford to speak out. But someone at the other end, just starting out in their career, they're going to take a huge risk. Uh, What are your thoughts for... Uh, for the likes of Rowan Atkinson, the sorts of things he's said, uh, John Cleese, what he's said, what are, what are your thoughts around these uh, characters? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of both of them, I admit, um, and that's why it was really comforting over the last few years to see a, a string of videos and comments appear from both of them. In, in some cases, they went viral. Uh, these two leading uh, actors and comedians pointing to concerns with political correctness and the like. It seems rather... Uh, vindication of their stand in a, in a dark sense that John Cleese, for example, has recently seen some of his own work censored um, you know, for, for different reasons uh, accusations of racism made against the Faulty Towers series but just that idea of not being able to speak your mind, not to engage in freedom of expression, free speech Cleese warned about this very thing and now uh, right this month we're seeing it actually visited on his own works. It seems that he's been vindicated in what he's saying um, I think Cleese and Atkinson are such household names through their their various series and works and productions that it's it's good to see those people speaking out. Um, we probably wouldn't be aware of uh, their stand if it weren't for things like social media because much of the mainstream media, of course, uh, <laughs> deplatforms them, effectively cancels them itself by not giving them that voice. Um, but we certainly need to, to hear more of these things and, and hear from more of these sorts of people, and I, I certainly hope we do. Um, one one prominent one that happened a couple of months ago, there was a an open letter signed by some 150 people, I think all predominantly in Britain, uh, writers and uh, artists and intellectuals calling for uh, free speech, calling for society to hold short of falling off that cliff. There are a lot of names in there I, I don't profess to know, but aside from uh, Rowling, there were some other well-known names, uh, particularly to some of your older listeners, like Salman Rushdie, who, of course, some 30-odd years ago learnt the hard way uh, what the cost of free speech is with one of his uh, books, you know, earning him the, the wrath of the Iranian authorities. So some of these people have been no strangers to the struggle for free speech, but we're seeing it uh, revisited in a completely different way today. Of course, it wasn't called cancel culture, as far as I'm aware, back in the days when Salman Rushdie was making waves. Uh, listeners will mm. remember the name of his book was called The Satanic mm. Verses. And, uh, right. and of course, it was the Islamic religion that decided to, uh, you know, put a, a death sentence uh, on him uh, without appearing in court and, uh, and calling for his... Uh, uh, well, that's, what, that's, that's real cancel culture, isn't it? Uh, when, you're, uh, when you're sentenced to death... Uh, but this sort of thing, it wasn't mm. called cancel culture then, but it's not new. It's this idea of imposing your uh, authority on the on the closing down of your ability to make a statement uh, of whether it's true or not. But let's uh, assume that making true statements, uh, closing down the debate uh, with the, the intimidation that even comes with a death sentence. Mm. Mm, absolutely. And as you say, Neil, it's not a new thing and we may not always have had these terms for it, but even here in Australia for some uh, 30 to 40 years, we've now had a, a raft of state, territory and federal, federal legislation, um, the termed anti-discrimination laws or equal opportunity laws, which a bit like any other revolution seemed very meek and mild at first. They seemed perfectly reasonable. They seemed about 
uh, creating a more equal and just society. But of course, as time's gone by, things have become ever more radical. And now we see them shutting down free speech. We see uh, Lyle Shelton in the dock in in Brisbane, for example. We see these laws weaponised and used against everyday Australian people. And beyond those who actually find themselves on the wrong side of these laws, the chilling effect, that fear that they strike into people, um, that has a huge impact. You know, it will cause the person to think twice before they write something online. It'll cause perhaps the pastor to think twice about what he's going to say on Sunday morning. And that's a really sad thing for our culture, but it's become so embedded now. Uh, And I really don't think we're anywhere close, unfortunately, yet to starting to turn back from the cliff in terms of those laws because they're just so entrenched across Australia today. Damien, you mentioned Lyle Shelton, and so many of our listeners will know Lyle as the one of the primary spokespeople uh, when the marriage debate was going on, and uh, you and he were very close colleagues, and you and he were leading uh, what was the movement uh, for the no case on marriage. And uh, it's interesting that in those days, both you and Lyle Shelton were warning that things were changing. How can we uh, understand what the connection might be to that such a momentous decision there uh, on marriage at the end of two, uh, 2017 and what we might be seeing now as a, a snowballing cultural revolution that is overtaking us here in Australia? Uh, how do you see that momentous vote on marriage as being part of what we're seeing today? You're absolutely right, Neil, that we did warn against it. And many other figures, political, religious, did warn against it. I I know I can sometimes be very dark on our leaders, both secular and and faith-based, but there were some good good people who spoke really forthrightly in 2016-17. I myself wrote the forward to a a little e-book that we produced during the marriage campaign. It's still floating around online. It was called Consequences because that's what we warned would would happen. And of course, we were condemned as as doomsayers and naysayers and conspiracy theorists and all the rest. But we now see it coming to pass. We see people uh, in the dock for anti-legislation, sorry, anti-discrimination reasons. We see uh, parents having to be ever more vigilant about what their children are encountering, not only in schools, not neither both public and private, but even in their local council library, all these sorts of things. Um, The reason, Neil, for these things, as we warned in 2017 in particular, was because you already had the framework for this legislation, these tribunals, these courts, if if you like. When marriage was legally redefined, all of a sudden we as a society um, change our views on marriage. Not, Not we as individuals, but we as a corporate society. The view of marriage in Australian law was changed. And that had a huge cascading flow-on effect to all sorts of other legislation. But most importantly, these various Equal Opportunity and Anti-Discrimination Acts. And as we warned, they weaponise them. They give them a whole new lease of life, a whole new scope that they never really had before. And we're really seeing uh, more of that weaponisation occur now in the form of these uh, various gender um, conversion bills that you're suddenly seeing a flurry of around the country we have seen similar sort of efforts made uh, to repeal the right of faith-based schools to hire and fire and enrol who they will. These have largely stemmed from the 2017 marriage redefinition because if a society 
wants to hold to a particular view of something so fundamental as uh, the nature of man-woman marriage or whatever else it wants to call it, it can't help but have a flow-on effect on all these other laws. Uh, compound that with the sort of cultural trends that we've been talking about this morning and you arrive at a pretty dangerous situa- situation, very volatile one. And it goes deeper than any of us could have even anticipated. And while those consequences, and, uh, you know, I'll encourage listeners to uh, Google search that little booklet uh, about consequences that you warned about some years ago uh, to see whether those things are in some ways uh, being a little prophetic and coming true. But no one could have anticipated uh, that the the marriage laws and what they are bringing now with this cultural revolution could have affected every single man, woman and child in the nation. But interesting to illustrate that because we've been talking about John Cleese, we've been talking about Rowan Atkinson. Who would have thought that the future of comedy would be in doubt because of such a momentous change in our culture? Because uh, that's what comedians are concerned about right now, that they can't make light of peculiarities Uh, you know they love to pick up on personal peculiarities or insecurities or they like to make fun of the ridiculous but even comedians now are being censored because they can't say something that is going to score a laugh Uh, what are your thoughts on the way that affects every australian damien well firstly neil i never thought i'd be looking to mr bean as my champion but that's 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 where we find ourselves no, no, that's where we find ourselves. Look, as I said before, I can only hope that because they're such household names that uh, their their speaking out will make a difference. You know, all we need are a few more people. Perhaps a a pop singer or someone might be great, or a, a an AFL or a rugby player. Um, we've we've of course already seen one rugby player uh, make his stand quite vocally. Um, but you know, we need a few more of these people to speak out, and I think other people will find their courage too. Our special guest is Damien Wilde. He leads the Australian Family Coalition, defending the family, promoting a society grounded on conservative Christian values and aspiring to safeguard the basic freedoms under threat today. Uh, Damien, just before the news, I mentioned that one of our listeners had responded to our Facebook question today. The question asks, do you think cancel culture is a passing fad. And Adam on Facebook said, he said, definitely not. As long as social media and biased media is there as a mass platform to carry out cancel culture. Although only a matter of time till they cancel each other. Now, I wonder whether that might be a significant comment given what we can see historically and, uh, you know, revolutions that have happened in the past. What are your thoughts on the idea that eventually, when they overreach, uh, that idea of cancelling each other comes to pass. Oh, look, it, it's so true. Um, historically, so many revolutions have basically, not to put it too bluntly, they've eaten themselves. Um, we we talked earlier, Neil, about the French Revolution, and that's a case in point. Um, as it got more and more radical and political factions in charge of the things split off and, you know, today's radicals suddenly found themselves as the conservatives in these debates. The sort of laws uh, and machinery and fervour around things mirror uh, in in a similar way what we're seeing today. I mean, no one's out there guillotining anybody. But in terms of um, the legal framework, there was a thing called the law of suspects, which very much mirrors in some instances the anti-discrimination laws we see today. It was designed to basically safeguard the revolution uh, to 
punish those who weren't on board and interestingly many of the legal precedents from it um, such as the reverse onus of proof that is you had to prove that you were innocent there was no requirement to prove you were guilty it was all on you that's exactly the way our equal opportunity laws work today once you're in the dock um, you know people like Lyle Shelton and Bernard Gaynor and others have had to prove that they are innocent and that's a travesty, but of course it's nothing new to history. That's exactly the way these sorts of revolutions have operated in the past. And those sorts of revolutions, uh, as your correspondent on, online said, Neil, were certainly not passing fads, but they only ended when uh, these revolutions basically ended up destroying themselves. Okay. Interesting, when the French Revolution took hold, uh, there was a political crisis at the same time. And so it wasn't just unrest among the peasants, uh, there was a political crisis. And when there is a political crisis, that's when movements gain such a, a hold that uh, they can change the course of history. Uh, what are your thoughts for, uh, you know, for, I mean, the, the, the possible, I mean, let's, in America, they've got a political crisis right now. We could call it the election that's coming up. Uh, those sorts of things mm. are pretty significant, aren't they? Well, these are watershed moments and they have a huge impact on history. Um, you know, the results of these sorts of elections, much like our own election last year here in Australia, the federal election, they have a huge uh, influence on the path that the countries and societies will take. We often get asked why uh, the Australian Family Coalition shares so much international news on our Facebook page. And it's for that very reason that we, we don't live in a bubble. These trends affect us all. And these sort of watershed moments you're talking about, particularly elections and, and who governs us and what, what policies... They have a huge, huge impact on us, and that's why we, we simply can't afford to be passive observers. We have to get increasingly involved in these processes if we want to see the sort of outcomes that we as Christians would like to see for our society. Well, some more comments from listeners to reflect on briefly. Dixie says, in response to our question today, and of course the question you can find at facebook.com forward slash vision radio, do you think cancel culture is a passing fad? Dixie says, I don't think it's a passing phase. We not only have the ability to hide behind computers, but we also have tall poppy syndrome. Mix those two and it lets everyone who believes they've been wronged for the slightest thing become horrible and nasty. Uh, there's this horrible and nasty streak in a lot of people, and I suspect uh, uh, there's some issues around that too. What are your thoughts for someone like Dixie to respond to that question like that? Look, she's quite right that um, you know tall poppy syndrome is a thing, and Australians are notorious for that. But I'd also say that they genuinely like the little man. They do like the underdog. And I think we saw that in a really good way last year with Israel Folau. Um, you know, he wasn't a household name in every state. I, I, I must admit, I wasn't a, a rugby fan. But all of a sudden, people looked him up. Uh, they heard what he had to say and agree with with what he said or the method in which he said it. Utterly irrelevant at the end of the day because most Australians, not all, but most Australians said, look, these are his beliefs. It's his own uh, social media page. Why shouldn't he be allowed to? And at the end of the day, why on earth should he face something so drastic as losing his livelihood because of his beliefs. So it cuts both ways. And I think a bit like the earlier correspondent who talked about uh, social media as well, it, it presents opportunities for us as well as potential risks. It's really up to us how we, how we use it and how we get involved. 
Okay, there's another response here, in fact, from someone who's not listening to us right now, from Ian, who's responded on the Facebook page anyway. She's been visiting the uh, the Vision Facebook page. She says, I haven't heard the podcast yet, and no doubt he'll listen to it later. However, cancel culture is really starting to annoy the general public, so mm-hmm. it's unsustainable, and he believes it will be a passing trend. Now, that might be a wishful thinking, that it's a passing trend. Uh, what are your thoughts for what Ian has uh, thought there as uh, with, that, that uh, you know, if it's, uh, if it's starting to annoy the general public, maybe it is unsustainable? I'd love for Ian to be correct and for it to be just a passing phase, but sadly I don't think it is. Um, but I, I think he's absolutely right when he talks about how it just annoys the average person, a bit like I mentioned with Falau before. Uh, it didn't pass the pub test that someone should lose their job over their beliefs. I think that as it increasingly starts to affect everyday people, all of a sudden they'll take a bit more notice about it. I couldn't help but think at the time, even during the marriage debate a few years ago, that perhaps we're a little bit ahead of the curve, that perhaps it was a bit of a an intellectual argument at times trying to explain how this will affect you when the average person said, well, it won't affect me. Uh, I'm, I'm either married already uh, I'm you know, we were faced with retorts from uh, the Yes campaign, well, if you don't want a same-sex marriage, don't get one. But it does affect you. We are seeing that more and more and more. So I think when um, when it starts to affect people personally in terms of, you know, who they play sport with, um, you know, these transgender issues that we see, or indeed uh, where your children might be going to the toilet, what they're learning in school, um, what sort of books they're being given in the library, um, that you might not necessarily be able to even visit a library without being confronted by a drag queen performance, it actually is starting to affect people. And I think the more they see these things, the more they're actually going to arc up about it. Okay, we're probably then headed for more nastiness. And uh, for some, it's just an online debate. Uh, others are hearing conversations about it uh, on this program. And uh, we're seeing this thing start to uh, come into the media in commentary everywhere, this idea of cancel culture. And uh, interestingly, as as you say, Damien, we don't yet have the, the guillotine uh, like they did in France. Uh, we're not necessarily seeing, I think it's called a fatwa, isn't it, uh, that Salman Rushdie was under uh, with the Islamic regime, uh, wanting to wipe him out. You know, it's a death sentence. Um, but in the French Revolution, I'm sure the French, when they started that revolution, they didn't think that it would come to a point where there would be bloodshed. But eventually they were killing each other. So uh, if you don't nip this in the bud early, uh, the, the possibilities for all sorts of dreadful things down the track are obviously there. Well, when a society starts self-censoring, when it starts, you know, cancelling venues, banning books, pulling down statues, um, that's when students of history start to cringe because these things have happened before. And I don't think it's too dramatic to say this is often how it starts. Um, It's not too late to pull back from the cliff. Um, You know, as, as G.K. Chesterton once said, before you pull down a fence, work out why it was put up. Um, we as a society have never really needed to look at those fences or you know what sort of uh, protections and rails there are for us because I think there's been you know the legacy of a Christian culture and civilization that basically says you know we can agree to disagree we can have civil debates we can uh, discuss things and still be friends at the end of the day but as society gets perhaps colder and sharper and um, more of an echo chamber at times 
that's when we really need to to look at these basics and understand these sorts of underlying principles and why they were there and what they actually mean to us. We need to rediscover our love for our freedoms uh, and the you know the difficulties that people had to go through to win them for us. Damien, a lot of people will be saying, uh, well, if it doesn't affect me personally, I'm just happy to let this sort of thing go on. I'm, I'm concerned about it, uh, but I know there are wonderful champions out there like Damien Wilde, who's standing up and, and saying lots of things here, alerting people to uh, the challenges. Uh, but there has to be somehow or other every single one of us taking a personal responsibility here. And, and just to pick up on... Uh, a quote from one of the identities we were talking about earlier in our conversation and Nick Cave, uh, the sort of cult musician, mm. uh, he said, cancel culture's refusal to engage with uncomfortable ideas has an asphyxiating effect. Now, that's the interesting terminology I'll just draw attention to, an asphyxiating effect on the creative soul of a society. Uh, those are so powerful words. Uh, you wonder whether he took a little bit of time to try and think about what words to put in place there that would be so powerful. But those are poetic, those are powerful, those are very, very significant, this asphyxiating effect, because this is the way that when you are uh, implementing a cancel culture, you're actually crippling the soul of a society. What are your thoughts for, for that idea of the asphyxiation of, of crippling free speech? I think it's a perfect use of, of words. Um, I've often used, as have others, uh, the word the words chilling effect. And I think that when he talks about it being asphyxiating, he's exactly on the same page. You know, I, I and others speak about it from the, the desire to share the truth, to talk about matters faith-based, political and so on. Uh, Nick Cave is obviously coming at it from a, a creative and very artistic angle. But the desire at the end of the day is the same. Um, I'm not surprised that he's put it so eloquently. When I did my research on him, I discovered that he's a, a very well-read person and I, I think he has quite a, a deep uh, intellectual background that many people might be surprised about. They, they see a, a musician, a rocker, and they realise you know, that there's, there's quite a deep intellect behind it. Uh, but I think he's absolutely correct to talk about it being asphyxiating. It is a suffocating influence on our society. Uh, so more power to him in, in drawing attention to it. You know, we've got to talk about this idea of lawfare as well. You mentioned it a little earlier, the idea that our courts have been weaponized to uh, to aid the ones who are involved in this cancel culture. And, of course, prime example of that, and uh, we mentioned Lyle Shelton. Lyle Shelton, who was a colleague of yours in the marriage debate on the no side, well, Lyle Shelton just last week was hauled before the Queensland Human Rights Commission uh, for having the audacity to talk about the danger or what was uh, alleged that he said on the danger of drag queens as role models for our young and impressionable children. So as Christian believers, we say uh, more power to you, Lyle Shelton, for standing up and actually recognising something there that uh, we might all agree with. But uh, here he is, dragged before the Queensland Human Rights Commission, uh, which is like a court, and, uh, and no doubt we're not seeing the end of that. Uh, but this idea of a lawfare, uh, a one-way street again, the weaponising of courts, this is where we're up against things here, and the only people who have the power to take any action there are going to be those legislators who are in power. So it comes back to those who are making those laws in the first place, Damien. 
Absolutely. And why they can't see that these laws are just so wrong is beyond me. I mean, Lyle's case and that of many others before him highlights precisely what is wrong with these types of law. Uh, I mentioned before that so often we see the reverse onus of proof. You are guilty until you can prove that you're innocent. But in addition to that, there are so many other things wrong. I mean, quite aside from the fact that, frankly, people shouldn't be there in the first place. The process itself then becomes the punishment, because even if the person somehow proves their innocence, if they get themselves off the hook, as usually people do, because these cases are so flimsy, there's nothing nothing to them. But the process being the punishment, um, the complainants are usually um, resourced by various states and territories. The people in the dock have to completely look to their own affairs. Uh, and in some cases, it can be incredibly financially destructive for them. So for the average Joe on the street, um, the risk of winding up there will have that asphyxiating, chilling effect. Who would share their thoughts on man-woman marriage or whether you know you can menstruate um, for fear of winding up in one of these uh, these kangaroo courts, basically? But to return to your original question, Neil, about our legislators, basically uh, they've in large part allowed us to sleepwalk into this. Um, when these sorts of laws first came into being in the late 70s, early 80s, I'm sure they were done with the best of intention to have gender equality, racial equality, all these sorts of things. But these sorts of um, affirmative action policies very, very quickly end up becoming uh, the very antithesis of what they try to achieve. Uh, So today we find ourselves with this motley crisscross collection of laws across the country that... Um, our, our political leaders almost seem too scared to try and pull apart for fear of, a bit like the, the Jenga game, pulling out one block and seeing the whole thing come down. But unless we have a proper revision of these whole things, we're only going to see more cases like Lyle emerge in time. I'm absolutely convinced of it. OK. Our political leaders, they're afraid to address the issue. Let's take a call. Marguerite is in Rockhampton, Queensland. Hello, Marguerite. Oh, good morning. How are you today? Very well, Marguerite. I'm just ringing to say that, you know, the interview is just making me want to cry to know that vision, vision is the reason why I know and all these people out there, you know, you just don't, they're not being told. It's all being done secretly behind everybody's back and if someone does, like just say a politician said, like, I'm against this, I'm against that, then they get condemned and it's just it's just heartbreaking to Marguerite, think that these people are getting away and the only way we know is through vision not not everybody's going to have vision so the only way that australia's going to find out is who's going to be game enough to stand up and say what's happening well you know vision is just the messenger too uh, it really well, depends that's what i'm saying but it's a valuable it's it's vision is valuable it's like a owning a treasure to have vision in your home or in your car or to know about it but there's a lot of people out there who aren't listening to it who don't hear all this side of the the story and it's heartbreaking to think that it's just going to come down and I don't believe that it's going to go away and I, I believe that all of this is like a wave it's coming in and then all of a sudden it turns into a tsunami and everybody goes oh what just happened there mm-hmm. Marguerite, let's get a thought or two from Damien. Damien, what are your response thoughts for Marguerite? 
Oh, well, Neil, I'm, I'm very happy for you that you've, you've got such passionate listeners. And I think that's a credit to you and, and the station and the work that you do. Um, to Marguerite, I, I almost feel like I should apologise. As I've said before, Neil, I unfortunately, due to the nature of our work, find that I'm so often talking about what's wrong with the world. Um, but I think in this particular instance, if nothing else, we should be encouraged by the fact that uh, non-Christians, atheists, agnostics, and sometimes people who are downright hostile to some of their beliefs are actually on the same page as us on this issue. They are seeking to pull back from the cliff, and I think that's a welcoming thing. But, you know, can I just say in a, in a longer sense, we know as Christians that, uh, you know, we will have crosses to bear, but frankly, we know who wins in the end. So that may seem a little bit trite to say uh, when we are faced with all these sorts of dark things around us at the moment. But we should always have that thought before us. We know how it works out in the end. Marguerite in Rockhampton, thank you so much for your call. And almost out of time, I don't want to miss the point here though, Damien. As Marguerite raises, uh, she's not hearing this anywhere else. And, uh, you know, she says, oh, we're hearing about it on vision, but nowhere else. Well, this is because if we talk about the political class being fearful to address the legislation and protect every Australian, you've also got the media. And typically, people in mainstream media are fearful of uh, putting any sort of uh, uh, opinion or editorial, or they're, not, they're, they're afraid to actually give a balanced view here. What are your thoughts for for the need that there is in the media in Australia for some more balanced reporting on these issues? Look, there is certainly that, uh, and across print media, TV, the like. But the thing is, Neil, I think that we are really seeing the death of traditional media. Um, I, I don't think the rise of social media online platforms is a passing trend. Uh, I think that the current COVID restrictions have proven, if nothing else, that the online world is going to become such a huge opportunity in so many ways. And I'm pleased that Vision has such a, a large online presence as well as real time. So, you know, we may see, we may feel threatened by uh, the cancel culture among our traditional media, but I'm really enthused by the opportunities I see online with alternative uh, media. Uh, and, and opportunities for people, there is a great levelling of the ability to broadcast your views online. So I think that poses some really, really great opportunities and we shouldn't be too concerned. So is it fair to say that cancel culture begins online? And so if you're looking for the source, you've got to engage in that source. And what we're talking about is these publicly reported well-known cases, uh, even those celebrities. It's because what happened online in the Twitter sphere, uh, in those online platforms, actually then did overflow into a mainstream uh, discourse. So there is a certain sense in which uh, there's a need there for Christian believers to know what they believe and to engage in these things online and uh, not be afraid of a bit of rough and tumble and not be afraid of a bit of insult. Is this the sort of thing that you'd be encouraging, Damien? Absolutely. We've we've seen the power of social media through uh, the Black Lives Movement going back a few years through the Arab Spring, uh, Spring throughout the Middle East. You know, I'm not saying we should all have a trending hashtag and call people out onto the streets. What I am saying is it shows an incredible power to connect people and to get a message across. Absolutely. Well, Damien, our time has run out and uh, I want to thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us and uh, for listeners who are wanting to connect a little more deeply, uh, even pass on a message to you, even become a supporter of the Australian Family Coalition. Uh, let me point people to the website. 
austfamily.com.au, A-U-S-T, family. Dot com dot au. And uh, any insights here into the Australian Family Coalition? How are things going along for you, uh, Damien? Uh, COVID affects everybody. Uh, you know, you're, you've got a lot of supporters, as I understand, somewhere, somewhere north of 50,000 people supporting you. Uh, what, sort of, uh, what sort of support would you anticipate even coming from listeners today? Oh, look, um, I'm enthused by what, you know... Um, by what our supporters can do. Um, you know, we have the ability to call them out, sometimes at very short notice. Um, anything really just hops back is, you know, we are few in number in terms of, of leadership and uh, dispersed around the country. But I, I think as an organisation, the, the rapid support and growth we've seen over the last few years really just points to the need for organisations like ours and, and other good ones that are fighting these sorts of fights. Uh, so if anybody comes to our website, I certainly encourage you to sign up for our, our free emails. Well, there are, as you say, a number of wonderful organisations. Uh, let me just point people to ostfamily.com.au. Damien Wild leads the Australian Family Coalition. Damien, thanks so much for your update today on 2020. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.